Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. J.C. Bradbury, professor of economics at Kennesaw State University. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Seth. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to chat today about a pretty interesting retrospective article that you wrote, or a policy retrospective, about public policy towards professional sports stadiums. The article was co-authored with Dr. Dennis Coates and Dr. Brad Humphreys, who are also professors of economics at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, and at West Virginia University, respectively. So this is good timing, I think, because we're in the thick of the NFL playoffs and some winter weather issues in the Midwest, specifically in Kansas City, drew a lot of attention. The game the other weekend was played in sub-zero temperatures. And leading up to the game, there was a feature about a massive heating system of heating coils that ran under the field, I guess, to keep the, the field from freezing over to the extent that they could. And then another playoff team, the Buffalo Bills, are in the midst of a $1.7 billion new stadium construction project that's slated to open in 2026. So this made me think stadiums are more technologically advanced than ever. There are multi-million dollar humongous scoreboards. There's these pretty advanced temperature control systems. Some stadiums have air conditioning. There's this heating system under the field in Kansas City. Stadiums today are fundamentally more sophisticated and more expensive than their predecessors that were built a uh, 100 years ago or so. Think something like Fenway Park in Boston. So just to sort of open things up, is the project in Buffalo an anomaly or are billion dollar, and again, that's billion with a B, price tags for these new stadium projects, is that normal now? Yeah, this is absolutely the new normal. And the escalating cost of professional sports stadiums is something that's really been consistent going back. I mean, you could go all the way back to the middle of the 20th century, but really taking off in the 80s up and through the present. And so when you look at that $1.7 billion stadium they're talking about in Buffalo, that's about right at the average for what you're seeing costs of stadiums that have been either approved to be built or have already opened in this decade, the 2020s. And so, I mean, if you think about it, everything we buy gets a little bit nicer and stadiums themselves are entertainment venues for a large wealthy cohort of customers. And so owners like to make those stadiums as nice as possible so they can generate as much money as possible. And that's why we tend to see them increasing in cost over time. 
Okay, so that's pretty striking that this $1.7 billion stadium is just another stadium. So they're expensive to build. I'd imagine they're similarly expensive to maintain. And it turns out that local governments very often contribute to or subsidize these projects in one way or another. And your policy retrospective that you're really going to sort of analyze and dig into is basically, should they be contributing so much money? And if so, how much should they be contributing? Is that the right way to think about it? Absolutely. And as all three of uh, the authors of this paper, uh, Dennis, Brad, and I, we're all sports fans, and we all sort of have an interest in sports history and economics as well. And sort of looking back at the stadiums, you look at the stadiums that were built in the early 20th century, and those stadiums were all private uh, ventures. <laughs> and it would be unfathomable to expect the owner of the stadium to have it funded by local taxpayers, just like funding a general store on Main Street. It would just people would be aghast with that. And sort of those costs have been growing over time, those contributions to where it became sort of standard in the 1960s for local governments, municipal governments, even state governments to fund stadiums for sports teams. And then as there was some concern with some boondoggles we really had in the 1970s to say, well, maybe this we should be more prudent in how we do this. And so there sort of started to be some cost sharing in the 1980s. And so there's a split where we're almost around a 50-50 split right now, but the costs themselves are much higher. So the median cost of a new stadium being built in the 2020s is $500 million. And we're controlling for inflation in this. It's not just the value of the dollar has decreased. And so we're seeing a lot more real public money going into these stadiums than we used to. And I also thought it was pretty interesting, and just now you mentioned state governments can be involved too, for these projects that are sort of hyper-local in some sense. So just a little bit of background here, especially for listeners who might not be following uh, the stadium issues or or they might not live in a city that's had a, a stadium built recently. So you're mainly focused on the four major professional sports in the U.S., football, baseball, hockey, basketball. About how many cities are there in the U.S. that host one of these teams in the four major sports? And what is the average capacity of those stadiums? And part of why I'm asking is I'm trying to think about like how many people are actually directly benefiting from the use of the stadium. When you take a look at the four major sports leagues, and we just do that for simplicity, obviously there's funding that goes on at minor league and college arenas and stadiums as well. You've got four sports leagues of around 30 teams, and there's some overlap across leagues. Some cities only have one team, some have all four. And you're looking at sort of NBA and NHL arenas. They're normally around 20,000 fans or so. You, normally, in the, I think the average is like in the high teens are the ones that have been mostly been built. And some of them go up into sort of the mid-20,000s. And then next up, you've got sort of Major League Baseball stadiums and the ones – that were built, I would say, most recently in the 90s and 2000s. You're looking at sort of the low 40,000s. You may get some in the 30s, some up into the 50s. And then NFL stadiums average around 70,000. They're much bigger, mostly outdoor facilities, although some of them are domed, just like baseball stadiums as well. But they tend to, you're hosting weekly events. And you can have some stadiums that sort of, I'm not sure for the pros, but certainly in the college, you can get up to 100,000 for a football stadium. But in general, like where I live in Atlanta, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you're talking about uh, 72,000 fans when it sold out. And you noted that the lessons we're going to talk about today apply to the smaller minor league stadiums 
my quick Googling suggests that there's probably about 150 or so minor league baseball teams and stadiums spread throughout the country, typically in smaller cities. And so the same issues we're going to talk about today apply there just on a smaller scale, right? Absolutely. And in fact, just right now, I've been dealing with a new stadium that's been proposed for minor league baseball team in Columbus, Georgia, which isn't far from where I live in Atlanta. So it's sort of the same exact pattern. It's just scaled down. And so the issues maybe a little bit differently because we're talking about smaller communities that aren't supposedly going to generate a lot more interest, but it's absolutely the same economics apply to these smaller areas. And then the timing of writing this article on your end was partly because there's a a concern or a projection that there's going to be a wave of stadium building coming up in the next five or 10 years because a lot of the stadiums that were built in the 90s and 2000s are going to sort of come due to be replaced. So what is the typical lifespan of a stadium and what is it that causes them to need to be replaced? So that's something that Dennis and Brad and I kind of discovered by accident. We just wanted to create a database of stadiums. And we said, you know what, let's just take this all the way back to sort of the birth of modern stadiums in the early 20th century. And when you start doing that and graphing it, you can see distinct humps (laughs) in construction that happened sort of peak in 1970 and peak in 2000. And you go, hmm, there seems to be a 30-year wave. And so the reason that's kind of interesting is that The earliest stadiums that were built in the earliest 20th century, they tended to last 50 years or longer. And I mean, some of those stadiums still exist today. And so structurally, they're sound. I mean, that was one of the advantages of building a concrete and steel structure is that it could stay. But all of a sudden, teams seem to be getting rid of them every 30 years. And just actually today, there was a suggestion that maybe the Chicago White Sox are thinking about moving to a new stadium. And it feels like they just got a new stadium after they replaced Comiskey Park, which was an old park. Now, the reason why that's kind of interesting is that these stadiums should be lasting longer. Why are they wearing out so much quicker? We're not using cheaper materials. And part of this is because team owners don't own these stadiums anymore. They lease them. And so in all the stories I was reading today about Chicago White Sox, well, their lease is up. (laughs) And so when the lease is up, that allows them to just walk away. And team owners love to open new facilities because it generates what economists have discovered to be called the novelty effect. That is, you see this burst of interest in new stadiums, fans come, they get more revenue. And so when their lease is up, they'd like to leave, even though they have a functional stadium, get these novelty effect revenues. And the lease, they're leasing it from the city or the municipality? Normally, that's how it works. You have some sort of, whether it's a quasi-public agency, you might have a stadium authority. And sometimes it's run by the state. And so, for example, I believe the Baltimore stadiums are owned by the Maryland Stadium Authority, while around the country, you might have a local city authority that owns it. And this creates some tax benefits because it's not public, so it's not taxed on the tax rolls. And that's really who owns it. And so at the end of the day, it's really only useful for one thing. So the owner basically gets to use it without really, they technically don't own it, but they really have total control of the venue, so they might as well own it. Right. Because if if they don't renew the lease, it's not like there's another football team next door that can move in. They're the only show in town, I guess. Right. Absolutely. And then this idea of like not renewing at the current stadium and wanting a new stadium, if it's not wearing out or dangerous to enter the building, the stadium's still functional. They're wanting to leave for something newer, flashier, more fancy restaurants, nice 
booths and so on for the fans. It's really about the fan experience being better and this novelty effect you mentioned is exactly what's driving it. I think that's sort of what's pushing it. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons why it could be the case. And I think the novelty effect is the best explanation as to why you trade in a fully functional venue, even if it's free to you. But I think that the second question is, well, the novelty effect tends to last really no longer than 10 years for any new venue. And so the question is, well, why don't they build new stadiums every 10 years? Well, normally to sign a stadium, you're signing a lease for about 30 years. And actually, this is something that uh, I figured out from talking to a colleague of mine, Jeffrey Profiter at the University of Colorado, Denver. He has a, a neat database of all the stadium leases. And he shared it with me. I said, oh, these are almost all 30-year leases. <laughs> That's what's explaining it there. And I thought that was so neat. And so, But you look at stadiums like, for example, the Atlanta Braves. When they came to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium in 1966, the stadium was built in 65, they signed a 20-year lease. (laughs) And after 20 years was up, they said, well, we're not happy with our stadium. So they sort of pressured the city. We're going to leave you with this useless stadium and unless you give us better lease terms. And so they did. Then they threatened to leave when that lease is up and they get what became Turner Field, which was the Olympic Stadium. (laughs) And they bargained hard for that. And again, the city of Atlanta signed another 20-year lease. Well, what do you think happened after 20 years? Well, the team demanded much more improvements that were in the contract that was explicitly spelled out that the city would not have to spend more than $50 million on refurbishments. They said, nope, we want $200 million. They said, we're not going to give it to you. They said, fine, lease is up. We're not renewing it. We're going to move to Cobb County. So clearly these lease clauses are being exploited by teams to try and get even more favors, whether it's refurbishing their existing facility, but they would much prefer to move to a new facility. And I guess a question we'll circle back to at the end when we talk about sort of ideas for improving public policy here is why not just make them sign longer leases or something or better lease terms for the city? If I understand correctly, there's some reason that that doesn't happen. But before we get to all that, you mentioned this 30-year shelf life of a stadium, more or less. The current generation of stadiums that was built in the 90s and early 2000s that are due to be replaced soon. I remember from my childhood when Oriole Park at Camden Yards was built in Baltimore in the mid-90s. It was like a, a revelation that the stadium could be unique and quirky and unique to the city and have more food than just hot dogs and have all sorts of different sort of fun fan experience type things. That The, the Orioles in Camden Yards project really ushered in this wave of stadium building and that was the third wave of stadium building. You mentioned there was another wave in the 70s and then the initial wave in the, I guess, 1920s or so. Can you talk a little bit about what those earlier waves looked like and how the design and construction has evolved over the past hundred years? Sure. I mean, and I find this totally, this is super fascinating to me. I love reading about this. And at heart, I'm a baseball fan. So this really goes back to the early baseball part. So baseball as a major league sort of begins in 1870s. And most of the stadiums are wooden stadiums that literally burn down all the time. (laughs) So they don't last more than a few years. And then we get this new fire retardant material, concrete and steel, and owners just get sick of having to rent their stadiums from these landlords who their stadiums, they can't keep up with them. So they build these, what are considered palaces at the time. You've got Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, Shy Park in Philadelphia, and 
that are built in 1909. And those are sort of the first major stadiums. And they last for 60 years. And they have elevators, they have electricity, they have private boxes for owners with telephones. And that's where you get some of the classic stadiums like Fenway Park in 1912, Wrigley Field, which was actually not even built for the Cubs. It was built for the Federal League team in 1914, the Chicago Whales. And, I and, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's really neat. You see how old these stadiums are. So basically what happens is that at some point, it's not saying that Wrigley and Fenway haven't had adjustments throughout their history. I mean, certainly they have to refurbish them over time, but they were owned by the team owners and they still are. And so if you're looking at other stadiums, like a lot of football stadiums were built with municipal stadiums. That's why all these old stadiums are known as Veteran Stadium, Memorial Stadium, Soldier Field. Those are for World War I and World War II veteran memorials. And so that's sort of the early wave. And then as owners tend to start, after stadiums are reaching 50, 40, 50, 60 years old, they start saying, we got to do something. And they start looking at sort of these municipal stadium models that are being built for football and saying, hey, we need to have our own stadium built too. And that's sort of where you get that second wave coming in the 1960s when you've got teams relocating, moving out west, expansion teams. And that's where you get sort of the super stadium era of the modern super stadium. And so it's most famous for the cookie cutter stadiums that, you know, if you went to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium or you went to Bush Stadium in St. Louis or Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati or Three Rivers in Pittsburgh or even, you know, the Oakland Coliseum is that original design as well. And so they all had this sort of same multi-purpose design. And then that's what led up to replacing the stadiums in the 90s. Uh, and so, you know, Baltimore, the Orioles with Camden Yards, they were moving out of Memorial Stadium, which was a stadium that was built a little bit later than those. I want to say it hosted the Colts as well, but it was sort of your older stadium and replacing it. And the focus was more on rather than just packing fans in there, like these big super stadiums that would hold 70,000 people, you wanted to have sort of this more intimate, classic ballpark feel. But you wanted to make sure that everyone had nice concessions, ample restrooms, comfortable seats, good sight lines. Yeah, and I reading the history in your paper, it it made me realize that they and on some level, I, I think a lot of people that go to sporting events sort of already know this, but nowadays it's really not about selling an extra couple of tickets; it's selling an extra couple of concessions or souvenirs to the people that are in the stadium. That's where a lot of the money is. Sorry, I was just going to say that's why you see a lot of people. You see a lot of articles reading. It's more than a ballpark or more than a stadium that people are going there not just to watch the game, but they're going there to be entertained in other ways. Right. There's a climbing wall for kids and swimming pools in the outfield and, and all sorts of things. So that's the trajectory of stadium type. As we said, the costs went up. And as the costs went up, the public's contribution went up. It, I mean, it went up from zero to something. How did that happen? And how did we get from zero public contribution to now it seems like almost maybe 50% of the costs are put up by the public? It's sort of something that happens very, very slowly and gradually. And that is normally those first stadiums you were built when you had public getting involved, it was 100%. This is going to be a public venue. So the public is just going to build it. And in fact, the idea was that the team might be a tenant and they'll actually pay rent. And in some cities, the terms were better than others. So, for example, when Minnesota built the Metrodome that was hosting the Twins and the Vikings, that the terms on that were such that 
it's been argued that perhaps that venue might have actually broken even if it had been able to exist for longer than it did. But because it was this prudent public works and the, and the owner wasn't making as much money, they wanted to abandon it pretty quickly. While an example in Atlanta, the terms were so bad, it was actually losing money every day it was open. <laughs> it never was going to break even. In fact, when they blew it up for, after the Olympics, the Olympic Committee ended up paying that off. So the reason I sort of tell you this is sort of you start at this 100%, then people start realizing, wait, these are expensive. I could have spent that money on some other local public priority. Why don't we have some this we call this term public-private partnership? And that's a very common term used in this. And say, like, oh, we're it sounds like some sort of business relationship in which both parties are investing an equal amount and they're getting something in return. When in reality, the way a public-private partnership works is the public pays in and the private part of the partnership gets the revenue. <laughs> and so that's how they set these up. And one of the things that sort of drove the public provision of stadiums is that you had local leaders and boosters felt that having a big league team made you a big league city and would help make your city prosperous or maybe just make you happier, build your ego. So if you look at sort of the first sort of big stadium move, that's the Boston Braves moving to Milwaukee. And Milwaukee County Stadium was really built on spec to attract a major league team. And it's funny that they went there for around, I want to say around 13 years before moving to Atlanta, because another Southern mayor, Mayor Ivan Allen, wanted to prove that those of us who live down here in the South are a thriving metropolitan community as well. And so we're going to prove that by having a big league team. And so it sort of then became the norm for local boosters and civic organizations and particularly mayors, city council members, county commissioners to say, okay, we're going to be funding the team. And the team owners realized, wait a second, I don't have to be funding towards this. These guys will do whatever I want. And so they just start upping the ask. And it's almost like you keep asking ridiculous numbers until someone says no, but no one ever says no. (laughs) And so that's in my own personal experience. So as an economist, I've done a lot of research on this, but I've also followed a lot of these deals in the community. And where I live in Cobb County, I intimately got to watch the deal happen. No one is asking those questions even. It's just sort of, what else can we give you? It's just politicians and local leaders are so acquiescent to sports team owners that they'll give them whatever they want. And so that's just sort of the new normal. And it makes sense. I grew up in Philadelphia where there's a huge sort of connection to the Phillies and Eagles and really all the sports teams. And it's part of the fabric of the city in a lot of ways. And that's true in a lot of places. So there is that sort of civic pride factor, that common connection to your neighbors factor. And on the politician side, mayors and county commissioners and all that, they have the opportunity to be the hero that brings in the team or saves the team or you know prevents the team from leaving. So there's that part of it. But then there's also... And maybe this is a more recent part of the dynamics, but there's also an argument that over and above that pride in the team, that pride in the city, there's real economic benefits to having the team and building the stadium, whether it's creating jobs, whether it's boosting home values in a neighborhood, whether it's boosting tax revenue by creating new bars and restaurants and hotels near the stadium. When did that economic argument sort of come into the picture? So you sort of started to see the economic argument, and not that it didn't exist earlier, but you really sort of started it seeing come to prominence in the 1980s, right before we had this big construction wave. And that is a lot of team owners saw their leases were coming up. They were thinking about leaving in the 90s, and they were commissioning economic impact studies to be done. 
And economists really hadn't looked very closely at this. They hadn't really thought about this. But the idea is, unlike a normal private business where, you know, oh, I'm going to go shop at Walmart and I buy goods, I pay them enough money to have enough revenue to pay their employees and to stay open and, and earn a profit. So it makes sense for Walmart to do this. Why does a major league baseball team, why is it any different? Well, the idea is that, well, because it's a big league city, people are going to want to come here. They're going to want to live here. They're going to want to spend their money. But also, we can observe people going to a baseball game or a football game or a basketball game, and you see them spending money on tickets, buying concessions, buying merchandise. And someone points out, well, you know, people pay taxes on those things. That's generating spending. And everyone said, oh, there must be a huge economic benefit. And for someone who's not familiar with economic analysis, this may be a convincing argument because you think, oh, this is just money on top of everything else that's going on. Well, economists were highly skeptical of this because we understand the concept of opportunity cost. That is, people who were going to local sports games, if they spent it on sports games, if they didn't spend it on sports games, they'd likely be spending it going out to eat, going to bowling alleys, going to movie. It's just a transfer within the community. And this was all theoretical until sort of in the, the late 1990s, early 90s, an economist named Rob Body at Lake Forest College started doing these studies looking at comparing cities and seeing how the economic fortunes of these cities change using sort of rudimentary statistical tools that were available at the time. And I mean, you could, but you could even go back to Roger Knoll and some of his work doing this early on in, in the 70s, but weren't quite as explicit. And then you have like my colleagues, Dennis Coates and Brad Humphrey sort of took this to another level, looking at all these cities and basically finding out, look, if we're going to have this economic boom from either making yourself a big city or this spinoff development from development around stadiums, then it should be observable in the economic data. We can compare cities that didn't have teams to those. We can compare cities with teams to cities without teams. We can look at cities that got teams. We can look at cities that lost teams. And what economists found using numerous different methods is that there was never an economic boom when that happened. That is, it's not seeable in the data. And if there was this huge economic benefit of people spending this money, then it should be seen. And so that's just sort of the general early studies. And later studies have used more localized and granular data to look at this and continue to find support for these results. But for the most part, there certainly doesn't seem to be a big economic effect from being a big city or by having a sports team. And again, sort of the reason we think that we don't see any economic benefit, whether it's in, I'm assuming you're measuring this in either job creation or tax revenue or things like that. We think at least the reason we don't see that is is the sort of the crowd out effect you mentioned where a family's either going to go to the baseball game and spend a couple hundred bucks or they're going to take the kids to dinner and a movie and, and spend a couple hundred bucks. And, and that couple hundred bucks is getting spent either way. Right. Absolutely. So the right term to use there is crowding out, is that the sports spending really crowds out other local spending. So it's not this sort of endless multiplier of spending, which is often applied to these estimates. Oh, I spent a dollar at the ballpark. Well, the ballpark, the hot dog vendor then took that and bought clothes for his kids, and that caused that merchant to buy this. And so it should be endless and endless amounts of spending. But when economists look at it, you should never use a multiplier to look at sports stadiums for anything greater than one. It's just 
it doesn't seem to be any, let's put it this way, the multiplier doesn't seem to be bigger than any other type of spending in the community, that there's nothing special about it. But what is special about it is it's very easy to see. <laughs> and so we can see it being spent. And so this happens to me all the time because I'm very much skeptical about these economic impact claims. And people will say, how can you tell me there aren't people in that stadium? Look at those attendance figures. I'm not denying those attendance figures aren't there. I'm just saying that doesn't represent net new spending to the community. And it's not me you have to be mad at. You got to be mad at the entire economics profession who's looked at this over and over and again that keeps finding the same things. And it's completely consistent with economic theory. Yeah, I was struck uh, reading your paper when you review a lot of the studies, how many different data sets, different cities, different methods, different researchers have studied this in different settings. And it seems like it's a pretty resilient, robust finding that there's just not much of a bump. And then the same is true in restaurants and jobs and things too, right? Because if people are leaving the restaurant to go to the stadium, bartenders are going to leave the bar outside the stadium to bartend inside the stadium, again, where the money, where the people are going. So yeah, it does make sense. And it it seems like it's a pretty, you know, legitimate and credible result. I think the one issue moving forward is how do you get the general public and the decision makers to sort of come to terms with that fact. But coming back to the social benefits, the civic pride, the joy of fandom, the joy of cheering on your team, in a lot of ways, that seems like an unpriceable good. I don't know. How do you measure the happiness I get from watching a football game? But are there ways that economists and, and other analysts try to measure that or quantify that? And again, no one's arguing there aren't intangible benefits just from living in a community that has a sports team or even benefiting from when they play well. And the problem is, how do you measure it? And this is something that people will often say in advocating for a stadium. They go, you can't put a price on having the Buffalo Bills in our community. I'm like, Well, you just gave them several hundred million dollars. So you already did put a price on it. The question is, what are you willing to pay? And that's how an economist would view that. Is there a way we can measure how much people value what we obviously know exists? And there are really sort of three main ways that economists have studied this. And the first way is a very simple way. It's just to ask people. That is, we use this type of survey method called contingent valuation method. And it's not just calling people up and asking them, how much are you willing to pay? Because that's a very difficult question to ask. But you ask a series of questions to get people to give you consistent results that explain or demonstrate how much they're willing to pay to say, have a team in your community, even if you're not going to any games, even if you're not spending any money on it. I just might be happy that I live in a community that has Chicago Bears. I'm never going to go to a game. I don't even watch them on TV, but it makes me feel good, and I value that. And this literature or this type of study really comes from the environmental economics literature, where we're valuing environmental amenities. I'm just very happy that Yellowstone Park exists, even if I never go there. And so I'm willing to use my tax money to fund that. And so when economists run these surveys, and they've run them in small cities for minor league teams or college teams, as well as major league teams, they tend to find that, yes, there's some civic pride, but people value it much less than the subsidies that are going to stadiums. And typically, you're looking at sort of, I value the stadium at about 10 to 15% of what the price of building it is. So it's not enough to justify the stadium. And so I often like to say that maybe we can justify on social benefits raising spending tens of millions of dollars, but there's no way you're getting into the hundreds of millions of dollars from social benefits. So I just wanted to go back. The It seems like nowadays, cities are typically putting in 50 to 60% of the cost of the stadium. Right. Absolutely. It, yeah. And that's five times more than the 
10 to 15% value that these survey experiments suggest. Right. Absolutely. And, and even when we look at other methods to try and confirm the survey methods, you can look at property value. So we take the idea of that economists have looked at valuing property. Say if you live in a good school zone, that we expect those houses to sell for higher prices because you're zoned for a good school. And so if you live near a stadium and you value living, if living in a city has a stadium, do we see higher prices in property that's adjacent to a stadium or just in a city with a stadium? And the evidence on that is mixed in that some studies find there's a big impact. Some find is an ne- even a negative impact that actually like a team leaves town <laughs> and the property value goes up and some there's no effect. But I think sort of the real issue here is trying to identify causality. And that is a lot of times you're seeing stadiums are being built in areas that are primed for redevelopment. And so we've seen some studies that have been done where you try to sort of try and take that into account, this endogenous nature of where it's being built. And in fact, it turns out that really the reason why the property value grew in the area around the stadium was because the stadium was put in an area where property values were getting ready to grow. (laughs) And so that's not very strong. And the other method that I mentioned was voting. That is, we look at how people, if they're willing to vote for stadiums. And sometimes they're willing to vote to fund stadiums and sometimes they're not. So again, the evidence there is a little bit mixed. There's some value, but it doesn't seem to be anything close to what we tend to be spending on stadium subsidies. So that suggests that we are spending more public money than we should on subsidizing stadiums. And I think it's worth pointing out that this is all just looking at the sort of raw numbers. It's totally ignoring the fact that there's an opportunity cost of those public funds. And those public funds could have been used to do dozens of other things. They could have been used to improve public school buildings or subway systems or anti-poverty programs. There's all these other ways that that money could have been spent that might have had a higher ROI uh, return on the investment. Is that a fair thing to think about here? It's not just fair. It's the right way to think about it. That even if we can say, oh, we're going to put in $10 million, we're going to get $10 million of benefit out of it, perhaps putting $10 million into something else would have had a greater return. And I think there's actually very strong arguments for doing things like improving schools or roads that benefit everyone, not just the wealthy cohort of fans who tend to go to sports games. And by making lower crime, uh, nicer streets, safer streets, you're going to make it more likely for businesses to want to locate in the community and you can increase your tax base. And so I think there's very little argument that sports are a superior way to spend money on public investments versus other types of public projects. No, I fully agree there. So so then that leads us to like, why, why is there this disconnect? It seems like there's these two fundamental disconnects both in terms of A, like what we're spending the money on, and B, how much money we're spending on it. And in a lot of policy issues, policy questions, understanding the causes is is central to identifying the right response, the right solution. So what are the causes here? And it seems like there could be a few. The one, my prior coming into this discussion was that the team's threat of leaving and sort of holding the city hostage, so to speak, was a big reason that they would get these exorbitant subsidies. But another thing you mentioned in the in the paper are these special interest groups that really push it. And you've convinced me in the paper that the special interest groups are, are playing a really important role here too. And then maybe a third reason that this disconnect is happening is that there's a lot of confusion, I think, for lack of a better word, about sort of 
how the money is actually being generated and where it's being generated from and things like that. So we'll get into all three of these, but let's start with the financial instrument side. How are cities generating the money and how are they transferring the money to teams and to the stadiums? So initially, when you started having public entities building stadiums, you would just, you know, you'd put down the bonds, and you'd pay them off with your property taxes, or maybe there'd be a sales tax that'd be put in place that was just added on top of any general type of contributions to government. And of course, people didn't like that. So one way to do this is engage in what public economists call physical illusion. And physical illusion is when you make the actual costs of projects less transparent. And so and I'll give you a perfect example of a project that's being proposed right now, the Potomac Yard project in Washington, D.C. to move the Washington Wizards and Capitals to Alexandria, Virginia. And so the governor of Virginia is pushing this and he's saying, this is not going to cost us anything. And they're putting a billion dollars of public money in. And he says it's not going to cost us anything because those taxes are going to be collected from that area. And it's more complicated than I'm explaining here. But in general, we're going to create this district. Sometimes we call these tax increment financing. We're going to take money from this district. And when people spend their money there, that's going to fund that. And so that's viewed as, oh, this is new money because people are spending the money at this new development and that otherwise wouldn't exist. But that's confusing what we're talking about. We're not saying physically there's not a dollar spent on that spot, although there is plenty being spent there right now. But (laughs) it's not that it's not spent on that spot, but that people who were spending their money elsewhere in the community now spend it there. That is, the taxes that are being collected, whether it's through property taxes, through increased value of the property, or through sales taxes, that's less sales and property tax revenue being collected elsewhere as that type of commerce becomes less valuable. So it's always important to remember the old economist adage, there's no such thing as a free lunch. That is, if you're getting a billion dollars to fund a stadium, that just can't be pulled out of thin air. It's got to come from somewhere. And that somewhere is the local community because that's who normally consumes sports events. And not even when it's not just a sports event, but like a surrounding entertainment district. Well, even if you put a new district there, let's just say there are a whole bunch of new restaurants there. Those are restaurants I'm going to spend money at that I would have been going to spend spend money on, say, in Fairfax or in Washington, D.C., and that revenue is being taken out of the community. And instead of being funneled back to fund police roads or other things, it's being used to fund the stadium. So there's a huge opportunity cost there. And that's not intuitively obvious. But I feel like it becomes obvious once you you sit down and and sort of think about it. And another uh, problem here is that the media doesn't always do a very job of, of sort of critically and thoughtfully distilling all of this stuff for the community. And this fiscal illusion, you called it, of sort of just keeping things blurry. And it's almost like a like sleight of hand or, or sort of tricking people into to thinking that the, ma- the money will magically appear. My review of this is somewhat colored by the fact that I'm a child of two journalists. Both my parents were newspaper reporters. So I grew up in the newsroom and I have an affinity for media reporting. So I come from the perspective of not the media being bad at reporting things, but why might good people in the media get this wrong and often (laughs) report these bad numbers? And I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the how rare it is for a community to get a new sports stadium. If it's once every 30 years, 
you don't have a reporter who's covering the stadium beat. And so you have someone who's like, you're covering the city council meeting. What? I got to cut to the stadium now? But I'm working on this big scandal. Oh, you call up your buddy at the Chamber of Commerce says, hey, you got any numbers on the stadium? Sure. He hands over you to the Commissioned Economic Impact Study. Great. It could generate $12 billion. You write it in your story, hit send. Now you're back on your other project. And so I think it's sort of this sort of there are a whole bunch of factors coming together, and newspapers and television media organizations, they often make money by having sports teams advertising them. So there's this symbiotic relationship here. And so a lot of the reality of what the economic impact is doesn't get filtered through to the general public who already predisposed to like sports. They go, oh, I like watching sports teams. Sure, why not give them a billion dollars? Because they don't know how much a billion dollars even is. The other thing I thought related to all that is that the newspapers – want to have a good relationship with the teams because they their reporters want access to the teams to write the sports pages, which are a valuable part of the local newspaper. So there's a lot of incentives, uh, I think, that explain sort of why things happen the way they do. So coming back to the sort of the threatening to leave story, you mentioned the Braves left Boston for Milwaukee, then they left Milwaukee for Atlanta. And then even within Atlanta, they left Atlanta for the neighboring county how big of a role is that sort of threat to move in explaining why teams keep getting these stadium subsidies relative to some of the other reasons we've talked about? Well, it's not unimportant, but I think it's less important than it used to be. And so I think sort of the zenith of this is when you see in the 1980s, you sort of have the Colts leaving Baltimore to go to Indianapolis. You have the Raiders leaving Los Angeles to go to Oakland. Excuse me, they leave Oakland to go to Los Angeles and back again. And, and, and now they're in Las Vegas. And you had these sort of threats to move. But what also was changing is that there are a lot of other major leagues, not just Major League Baseball or the NFL. You got the NBA and the NHL. And a lot of these leagues expanded into other cities. So the threat to leave. So for many years, the Florida Marlins, the Miami Marlins, they were the Florida Marlins, they were threatening to leave Miami. And they were like, we're going to go to San Antonio. It's like, the owner can't be that dumb. You know, Miami's a much bigger city than San Antonio. Now, I'm not putting down San Antonio. It's a great city, but I'm saying that's a much bigger market. That doesn't even make any sense. You didn't really have any place to credibly move, and NFL team owners were where they wanted to be. And then they started realizing, wait, we don't even have to bother threatening to move, which can also tear the fabric in the community. If you say, I'm thinking about leaving, then someone says, well, you might as well leave. I mean, I can't imagine Philadelphia fans, you know, if you're thinking about leaving, get out of here. <laughs> That's the type of thing you're going to see. And and so, but if you look around, I think it's always important to look at the stylized facts. Look at all the cities or teams that are getting new stadiums without threatening to move. The Atlanta Falcons had a pretty new stadium in the Georgia Dome and that would open in 1992. And they just said in the early about 2012, uh, we'd like a new stadium, please. And they got one. <laughs> and you know the Texas Rangers, well, I know we used to have a new stadium, but we'd like another one too, please. Okay. And, and so he, it, it's not so much this sort of limiting the supply of teams and threatening to move because almost all these markets either have them. So there aren't very good, credible markets to threaten to move to. And why even bother going to the charade of pretending to move when you don't have to do it? So I, I don't think that that is so much as driving it as it is sort of the local pressure and just the desire to be around sports teams and the perks that local community members and politicians get from supporting the sports team. Those are the types of things that I think are more driving stadium construction and replacement these days for professional sports teams. No, that's fair. And the last possible reason has to do with the special interest groups, or I think you call them local growth coalitions. I've never heard that phrase before. What exactly is a local growth coalition? 
Like who's in it? What do they want? What are their objectives? And how did they come to have so much power in some of these negotiations? Well, this is where the economist learns from the sociologist. So this idea of local growth coalitions is from two sociologists in the Philly area, Kevin Delaney and Rick Eckstein. And they wrote a book about 20 years ago based on case studies of going around and looking at how cities got stadium deals done. And what they found is that in cities, it was more the sort of culture of business leaders, maybe business executives, maybe members of the chambers of commerce, and it differed by city. And that when they were developing economic development policy for their community, these groups had lots of power. And they also tended to people who tended to like sports, go to sports, and sports games provided a great place for them to be entertained. And so Delaney and Eckstein sort of talked about these local power centers. They called them local growth coalitions. And they found that these groups were the ones who are helping sports teams get approved. That is, they would go and interview a mayor and the mayor would say, well, I've seen the economic research that says this is a bad idea. And rather than the mayor asking, so should we not do this? He says, how do I combat this idea in the public so we can get this approved? <laughs> and so it's sort of everyone is on the same team. And that's sort of the ethic that sort of governs these projects. And it's not so much of a political economy, a model that economists and political scientists might be used to with concentrated benefits in team owners and dispersed cost by spreading the cost of the taxpayers throughout the community. But you actually have these insider groups that are really setting the culture here for getting these things approved. And because of that, you tend to have public hearings turn into pep rallies. I mean, literally, when I went to the Cobb Braves Stadium in Cobb County, there were people there doing the Tomahawk Chop chant in T-shirts at the town meeting to discuss this. I mean, it's, they turned into pep rallies. And so, but this is one of those things where I actually learned. So I was a member of the Cobb Development Authority here in Cobb County, which is we approve incentives for local development projects. And I came to see how powerful these coalitions are. And that is, as economists from the outside, we may look down and say, here's how cities should be doing this and why they shouldn't do this. But the reality is that you have no hope. It's sort of a rigged game. And I think that's why sort of changing the game is about changing people's perceptions as to why stadiums might be bad and helping them understand them, because it's very hard to fight City Hall. And that's what you really have to do. And I think we said at the outset, no mayor wants to be the mayor that let the beloved team leave on top of the financial benefits and insider access maybe to the stadium, to the team that you might get from helping to broker a deal. So, but I mean, still, so all of this said, it still seems like there's a problem here that's worth trying to fix. So how do we go about doing that? You suggest a, a few ideas and suggestions and as an education policy researcher myself, I'm well aware of the fact that academic research and, and credible evidence doesn't always get used in policymaking as precisely or as much as we might like. But you still suggest some ideas. One idea that you propose is, to, is for the people doing the studies, for the researchers to be more proactive in translating and disseminating their research and trying to explain the results in plain language and, and in, in intuitive ways to the public and to the media. And that makes a ton of sense to me. So I was thinking about how, you, how do you do it? And I thought, oh, this would be a great segment for like John Oliver's show to talk about or 60 Minutes or something like that. And after some Googling, I found John Oliver did do a 20-minute segment on stadiums about five years ago. I think mainly focused on San Diego, the San Diego Chargers football team leaving for Los Angeles. 
And it was a pretty typical John Oliver segment. It was funny. It was smart. There was some some data, some studies. So like that's already been done. Other than that, how do you go about doing this? The Oliver special was actually great. I actually talked to someone behind the scenes and all that. They actually did a great job researching that. And I think that part of the problem with policy in any type of trying to influence policy is you always think there's going to be a silver bullet. And I think that, you know, particularly the reason I think we decided to put that in the paper we're writing is that, I mean, I'll talk to another economist and they'll say, JC, why are you working on that? Everyone knows these stadiums are a boondoggle. And I was like, well, you and I know because we're economists and we understand that, but most people don't know. And I think there's sort of this understanding that we as policy experts, we can tell the people who are making the decisions, but then we sort of step back. And when you see how decisions are being made about this, where the people who are asking the questions aren't, what do the experts say? What are the costs and benefits? When the people who are making decisions are saying, how can we hide the cost from the public so we can get our stadium approved, <laughs> which is exactly what is happening. And that's where I think it involves, you see a reporter report something incorrectly, and you know, I'll see a headline. Proponents of proposed stadium, but economists aren't totally convinced. I'm like, well, that's kind of some biased language there. You're saying there's a fifth, there's not a reasonable argument that stadiums are going to have a big economic impact. And so my view is to try to directly engage. And we have all these social media tools. You can contact a reporter. You can write an op-ed. But I think also just talking in general to people about it to, to spread the word because I talk to people all the time. They go, oh, I had no idea. Now, people don't always listen to you. So when I was doing a lot of research on the Atlanta Brave Stadium here in Cobb County, I did publish three studies in academic journals on that. Hardly anyone's going to read those except other academics. But what I did was I wrote up a policy report that was aimed at the media and general interest readers. Now, I don't know if that had any influence or not. The stadium was already done. But the idea is that right now people are talking about, hey, we're going to build another stadium just like they did in Cobb County in Chicago. It'll work because it worked in Atlanta. Well, hey, here's someone who's done something that he doesn't say, hey, go and read my article in complex mathematical economics. <laughs> hey, here's an article that is sort of written for other people to read in hopes of influencing policy. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm not naive here in going out and presenting this as well, but I sort of feel like the attitude that I run into with other economists is that, well, there's not much else we can do. Uh, you're wasting your time. And I just think, well, it's just harder to get the information through. I almost wonder if maybe framing things in terms of what's being lost or what the costs are of continuing to do this instead of talking about what the potential benefits are or, or aren't might be useful showing visually like what's happening to the city budget or what's happening to taxes down the road or what student achievement could have been in the schools had the billion dollars gone into fixing the pipes and the the heaters and whatever it's a real challenge to translate that careful research to the to the general public yeah so i actually was talking to a, a, another economist colleague friend of mine craig depkin who teaches at unc charlotte and he was talking about he wanted to look at how many fire trucks was the city unable to buy <laughs> you know could put it in tangible terms and so i think one way to think about it is when you see a community spending a billion dollars it's not something that most people can comprehend because most people aren't going to have a billion dollars and so take for example the new tennessee titan stadium that's 1.26 billion dollars that are being spent between Nashville municipal government and the state in funding that. 
So how can we break that down to where it makes sense for a Nashville household? So the city of Nashville, it's really the county there, is spending $760 million. If you divide that by the number of households in Nashville, that's about $2,600 per Nashville household. So that's a lot. And then you take the $500 million that the state's throwing in, and that's about $190 per Tennessee household. And you take that and add it up in the Nashville area. That's about, and net it out over 30 years, that's about every household in Nashville paying $93 a year to build a new Titan Stadium over 30 years. So I may not understand what $1.26 billion is, but I know that having to spend $100 a year coming out of my pocket to fund this even if it's not if it's exactly $100 for me or coming through that way, that makes it more relatable. And so when you say to someone, you can't put a price on this. Are you willing to pay $100 a year for the next 30 years to build this? Okay, maybe I'll think more about it. So I think framing it in those terms can also be helpful, putting it in relatable terms. Now, another idea you talk about is, well, A, like what happens when the stadium decision really does come to a public vote in some sort of referendum or ballot initiative? It seems like the results are, are somewhat split when the voters actually vote on doing this. How realistic is it to make ballot initiatives more common for these types of big public spending issues? And also, the stuff we talked about with the media and framing, I mean, that's going to matter for these public initiatives as well. So I guess, I don't know, I'm torn on sort of how realistic it is to really leverage public referendums and ballot initiatives to help solve this problem. What do you think? Absolutely. And in fact, some politicians are trying to ban referendums in states. So John Matsusaka has a great book on referendums he published about two, three years ago. In most of his career, he's done a lot of good work on talking about how referendums are very good at producing better policy. And I think one of the reasons why these local growth coalitions are so effective is because you can fit a majority of the city council in the owner's box. You can't fit a majority of the electorate. And that's why when you go and you survey the public, they're split on funding stadiums. And lots of surveys show this. But whenever it goes through representative democracy, almost 100% approval. And so I think trying to use the referendum where you can gives us more deliberate thought over it. And, and sometimes they're approved. The, the Texas Rangers Stadium was approved via referendum, so it doesn't ever happen. But the Arizona Coyotes recently had theirs turned down. Oklahoma City Thunder had theirs approved. And right now in Las Vegas, there's a recall initiative to vote the money approved to give money to move the Oakland A's to Las Vegas. But it's going to cost a million dollars or so in funding. That's hard to raise that. So I think you're very right to say, hey, just use a referendum isn't all that easy. Because a lot of times referendums require the representatives themselves to send it to a vote. And it's very hard to get the signature signed. And in some states, so I was talking to someone about in another state about proposing that. And the person, I won't say what state it is, I don't want to out the person said, we can't do that in our state. (laughs) That's, you know, it's ridiculous because politicians set the rules so that you couldn't do it. And actually there was a push in Georgia to ban local referendums when some referendums were supporting some policies that elected officials wanted to put in. So it's great for me to say, yeah, we should use more referendums, but you're right. There's some practical limitations. But I think that if we can foster the idea that voting on a lot of these things are good because it's not an emergency, we don't have to do it tomorrow. It gives us time to think about it. And I mean, sports aren't an emergency. I mean, even if, oh no, the team doesn't have to play a place, boo, you know, a stadium to play in, boo-hoo. I mean, that's not the end of the world. You can find a spot for a year or so. We've done it a lot. 
So that's sort of how I view it. I think it's, I think it's something to strive for and at least want someone to make the case this shouldn't go to a referendum because because I think the general idea should be if you can have a referendum, you should. And at the end of the day, politicians should be able to walk away happy. Hey, I made the best case and I lost. Or in the case of, say, Oklahoma City, I made the case and the mayor won. And that happens. So the the last part of, of all this, and in some ways, I'm almost embarrassed that it sort of got pushed to the very end here. But the elephant in the room is that almost all, if not all, of these professional teams are doing very, very well, right? They're making a lot of money. The team franchises themselves, their valuations have skyrocketed over the past 10, 20 years. So why is it so hard for the cities to get a better cut of the revenue. So like, even if they do put up the money up front to get the stadium built, why is it so hard for them to get a better deal over those next 20, 30 years? Like, why don't they get a better cut or a cut of the naming rights for the stadium? Why don't they get a share of the concession revenue? Because that would be another way to offset the costs, right? Well, I mean, I think it's because owners don't want it. And I mean, the reality is that politicians are so acquiescent to the demands of owners because, and it's hard, and I can only assume what their motivations might be. But I think, you know, when I go in to talk to the owner, I get to meet a famous owner. Maybe there's a Hall of Fame player there to shake my hand. I'm seeing the plans from inside the loan, the owner's box. And so I think it's very hard to sort of fight back against that. And so I think that you're right. These are billionaires. There's no equity justification for providing subsidies for very wealthy owners and the people who go to games. I mean, these are palaces. And so it's just one of those things where I think that people sort of uh, cover their ears, close their eyes and just say, oh, this is for the best. And I'm going to enjoy some perks of being around this. Maybe I'll get free access to the stadium. Maybe I'll get to get some gear. It just seems to be something that uh, local leaders tend to really like. And maybe it's the perks. I don't know. Well, I'd imagine the perks are certainly part of it. The other thing is is uh, just sort of status quo bias. This is how it's been for 20 years. And suggesting otherwise is just so far out of left field that it's hard to even imagine asking for it, let alone being granted it. But I think it's, in some sense, moving forward, I, the massive profits and valuations of the teams, I feel like that has to come up somehow in these discussions. And Maybe in the long run, teams overplay their hands and uh, eventually people get tired of it. But it certainly doesn't seem like that's happening anytime soon. So, uh, no, so I was just going to say, so we've, we've covered a lot here. And let's try to wrap things up in a helpful way to our listeners and citizens, sports fans who are thinking through all these sort of complicated issues and the disconnect between some of the different policy decisions we've talked about. So I'll quickly recap my understanding, and then I'll I'll let you sort of weigh in to correct me in in places. So today, in 2023, or 2024, a new stadium costs upwards of a billion dollars. And in the next five or 10 years, there's probably 10, maybe 20, 30 stadiums that are going to be due to be replaced on that 30-year replacement cycle. Projections are that cities are going to pay about half of that cost or upwards of $500 million per stadium per city. Yet, they don't see really any return on that investment other than the civic pride type, you know, warm glow boost or whatever. That's uh, a small chunk, though, of that five to $700 million investment. 
And so it's a losing investment, but it's also a worse investment than other possible uses of the public money, whether it's schools or fire trucks, like you said, or, you know, fixing potholes, roads, whatever. So that's the the problem. We think that this problem is happening because there are these special interest groups that that are sort of representing their own interests rather than the typical citizen. There's some uncritical reporting in the news media, not necessarily uh, the responsibility of the media, but they're doing the best they can with the sort of shaky information that they're being given by the mayor's office or whoever. And that's where we are. Is that a fair recap, more or less? Yeah, no, I absolutely think, you know, we're in a we're in a world where there are we we continue to fund stadiums. There are going to be a lot more stadiums built and it has a potential to be a huge public policy problem. And so I think it's important to be cognizant that uh, there's no free lunch here. And that is if we're going to keep building stadiums just because we did it in the past doesn't mean it's good. And, you know, economists tried to sort of stem stadium stadium mania in the 1990s and 2000s. And no one listened to us. <laughs> and now that it's back, I think it's important for economists to step up and start pointing this out because people are predisposed to like stadiums. They like the warm glow. They like sports teams. They want to be told that this is going to be good for them. And when economists' skepticism is brought up, they always say this. This is the siren song. No, this one will be different. <laughs> and they'll claim that this stadium has some sort of feature that never seen before. And so it's very easy to fall for that. People just, it's kind of like when doctors were trying to tell people not to smoke in the, in the 1950s and 60s. It's bad for you. And people said, well, maybe the science isn't settled yet. You know, I can smoke a little bit more. And I think what economists need to say is, no, it's time to quit cold turkey or at least cut way back. And the science is settled on this. And so if you're arguing that stadiums are having large economic impacts and that economists are wrong or other researchers and regional scientists who studied this are wrong, well, then you need to have that discussion over in academia. It doesn't need to be hashed out on the op-ed pages of a local newspaper. It's not something that the city councilman has figured out. And we as researchers need to be taught a lesson and explain why we're wrong (laughs) rather than just saying, well, you know, we're just going to see what happens because what's going to happen is – Every When a new stadium is open, someone says it's the next big thing for the next 50 years. But 30 years down the road, oh, the people who designed that last stadium made a huge mistake. we got to replace it again. And it's just going to keep happening and happening. So now is the time, I think, for economists to speak up, other policy researchers to speak up, and hopefully you know, foster sort of a, an atmosphere of understanding to where media members and policymakers can say, we need to do a better job at, uh, at covering this and making better decisions. And so in that speaking up, I'll let you recap for listeners, whether they're concerned citizens, whether they're involved in local government, various decision makers, what are the two or three sort of main points you'd want to make to them in terms of like constructive next steps to address this looming issue of this new wave of stadium construction? Right. Well, I think the important thing to remember is that the reason why economists continue to find stadiums are not good public investments, and all agree on that, is it's because the inherent nature of the consumption of sports events, and that is it's largely local in nature. And so we're not one tweak away of, oh, we created an entertainment district or we put it in this in downtown, we put it in the suburbs, we connected it to public transportation. It's 
it refunded it using some new type of tax that we're not one tweak away from doing it, that it's the inherent nature of the business and that we're not going to solve that or fix that. And so don't try and think that you are. You haven't found some new way to do this. And if we are thinking about any type of funding at all, we need to try and keep it as low as possible. Like a doctor telling someone they need to quit smoking. Well, if, you, if you're going to smoke two packs a day, can you at least, you know, maybe take it down to one pack a day? <laughs> can we stop funding you $500 million? Can we get it to $300 million? Because that's something that's real value to the community. And if economists can sort of knock that number down, I think that's useful. Now, the problem is that then someone says, well, it's only $500 million. Someone else in another city spent a billion dollars. Well, $500 million is still a lot of money. So I think that these are real choices that are being made. And that, and this happened here in Cobb County. We built a stadium. We spent $300 million on it. And a lot of that money was coming from tourism dollars. And uh, when the tourism booster came to request funding, there wasn't any money for them. <laughs> I mean, that was a real consequence of that. Sorry, it's going to the Braves Stadium. And it wasn't widely publicized, but it's something that happens. And so looking for those opportunity costs, I think, is something that people need to remember. There's no such thing as a free lunch here. And if this was going to be successful, we would see it be successful. And it never is. I think you nailed it. And I think the idea of no free lunch sums up a lot of uh, economic lessons on a lot of different issues. But it's really striking here in this case. I really enjoyed reading your paper again. It was as a sports fan as an, uh, and an economist, it, it was really fascinating to sort of see the history of stadiums in general and the economics and, and financing of them and the public financing of them. It's a really nice paper, and I encourage our listeners who are interested to check it out. And it was, uh, and I think there's, a, it's obviously, you know, a call to action given that there probably is going to be another wave of, of stadiums in the next few years. So I want to thank you again. Is there any last thought you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, no, I think I've said plenty, and I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I really appreciate the forum because this is an important policy issue, which is why we wrote the paper, hoping to reach other people, trying to make good, sound decisions, and say, now, how can we inform that? Because this research needed an update, and I don't think people realized how much research really has been done on this, and our hope was to share this broadly to a, a wide audience. Well, yeah, no, that's the other thing. The paper synthesizes that, that large body of research very well. So check it out. Take a read. Thanks again for joining us. Our guest today was Dr. J.C. Bradbury, professor of economics at Kennesaw State University. Thanks again for coming on. It was a pleasure to chat, and uh, I'll see everybody next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website, and search for the JPAM podcast.